At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our Christmas message series, Eyewitness, finding your Christmas story in theirs, where you're invited to find your story in the extraordinary experiences of the men and women who witnessed the very first Christmas. Together, we'll see that no matter who we are, the coming of the Christ was for us. I just want to welcome you all here. It's really good to have you here with us together. Um, my name is Kevin, and I'm really privileged to be up before you to open up God's word with you and to listen to his voice. It's such a time that we need to hear it, and I'm humbled really to um, just to be the one in front of you today. And as we talked, no doubt this week, we've really witnessed a, a senseless tragedy. There's really no other word to describe it. Something I think Really, none of us ever want to see, ever want to hear children killing children. And as we're processing all of the loss and the sadness that accompanies this, I've found myself over this past week in a tension between gratitude that I have my children with me and tremendous sadness that others do not. And I think to admit that is just to admit that I'm human. Fear and anxiety are everywhere we look. And God, I don't think, wants us to deny those emotions. He doesn't want us to be dishonest with him about how we're feeling. But I am so thankful that we have been covered by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We've been covered by his love. We've been covered by his blood. In Jesus Christ, we have all of the security we could ever need, both now and forever. And see, this isn't just something new today. This is the powerful truth that we've heard over the last several weeks from Romans 8, that God is for us. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He sees to our needs both presently and eternally. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, church. We are more than conquerors in him who came for us and loved us. See, these are the truths that give us hope to press on, to move forward. Not move forward and forget, but move forward knowing that the Almighty, our Creator, our Sustainer, is in fact with us and with us dearly. And I think we can all agree that collectively we would wish that things like this over the past week would just stay outside of our realm of reality. And yet life shows us something very different. And in this moment, myself, I know you are as well, we're all being moved in our souls in powerful ways as we hear firsthand through the eyes and the voices of frightened children, concerned parents, and sacrificial first responders. We are seeing firsthand what they see. We are feeling firsthand what they feel. Our experience is now theirs, and theirs is now ours. We find ourselves in their story as it's unfolding. But there is another story we can find ourselves in, and that is the story of Christmas. And this is our new 
series, what it's all about. And this is our aim over this next month, really finding ourselves in the story of Christmas. And that's why we're calling it Eyewitnesses. You know, for disciples of Jesus, the Christmas season should be about remembering and celebrating the birth of our Savior. Yes, there's a lot of other things and there's a lot of great things and we should enjoy those things, but that's not where true meaning is found for us. And I want you to imagine for yourself and imagine with me for one moment what it would be like to be in the story that we read about in the pages of Scripture, to actually live in the first century, to actually be one of the characters, to actually be Mary, to be Joseph, to be one of the shepherds. I think the story of Christmas provides us with the opportunity to do just that, to be part of the story of their lives and respond to Jesus as they did. We're in a moment where responding to Jesus is really where only true hope is found. And I think what we're going to find is that the stories of those who witnessed Jesus' birth firsthand, they discovered that the coming of Jesus wasn't just for them, it's also for us. And today, we're starting with Mary. And it's really through Mary's story that we see vividly that nothing is really impossible with God. Nothing at all. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in verses 26 through 38. And really what we see from our passage is really two truths that I want to see, I want you to see from Mary's story, from Mary's life. And the first is, is that when God calls, he provides. Let's go to our text. In verse 26, Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, excuse me, a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Let's stop there at verse 34 for a moment. Our passage opens with, kind of a weird phrase since this is our start. It says, in the sixth month. What we have to understand is that our passage of the foretelling of Jesus is actually a parallel to the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth. And so six months here is a reference to Elizabeth's, John's mother, her pregnancy. And so the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and talks to her during the six-month pregnancy or at six months for Elizabeth's pregnancy. And it's the same angel, Gabriel, who actually came to Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, and proclaimed John the Baptist's birth as well. And so this is the angel that comes to Mary, and he's sent from God to Nazareth to the Virgin Mary. And I think the fact that this story is really so familiar that it really causes us, or it, it really permits us, a really chance to really miss something important that I want to point out. 
Our text says the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth really wasn't a city. It was more like a town. And it really receives no notice in Scripture at all. No notice in any of the literature written between the Old and New Testaments. No notice from a man named Josephus. You might ask, who is that? Well, he's a very important Jewish scholar, a Jewish priest and historian, and he's a primary source from whom we get much of our first century understanding of Jewish history and Jewish culture. So he's really important. And so nothing from him, but also nothing from any other writer in non-Christian literature from the Roman period. What we do know is that Nazareth was a really small town, less than a half square mile. And historians believe that it could have held a maximum population of probably 2,000. Archaeologists and all of their discoveries actually estimate that the population was only about 200 to 500 people at the time of Jesus. Church, Nazareth was so small, you could fit the entire town in Little Caesars Arena and still have over 200,000 square feet remaining space. This place was small. And let that sink in for a moment. God sent the foretelling of his son, the birth of his son. He sent the angel Gabriel to foretell it, the savior of the world, the promised Messiah, not to Jerusalem or Judea, not to the center of God's activity throughout all the centuries prior, not to the top 10 list of all the cool and the hip spots. No, to a small, seemingly insignificant town that was in every way forgettable. Nazareth was a non-place. Didn't matter. It was a blip on the map. And yet this is where the birth of Jesus is foretold. This would become Jesus' hometown. This was Mary's hometown. And Luke twice states that Mary is a virgin before he even gives us her name. He's not being disrespectful to Mary. He's driving home that this conception of Jesus is really extraordinary. It's a miracle. And earlier in this chapter, Luke tells of how the Lord opened up Elizabeth's womb. It says that she was barren and that both her and her husband were advanced in years. They had passed the years of childbearing. We're not given her age, but we do know that barren wombs have been opened before. Abraham and Sarah come to mind. Sarah was 90 when she conceived of Isaac, the child of promise. No doubt Mary knew of this story as a part of her rich Jewish heritage. But a virgin conception was really an unprecedented act of God. And so what we should see here is Mary's virginity is not presented to make us think that she is more holy or more worthy than anyone else or any other human being to carry and to birth Jesus. Instead, her virginity is presented as an obstacle to conception that can only be overcome by God's miraculous power. See, the parallel that Luke is giving us here between Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's birth is meant to show us that, yes, John's conception is extraordinary, but Jesus is, is way beyond that. It's way beyond extraordinary. So let's put the person and the place together. Nazareth was very likely a small farming town with none of the resources of a big city like Jerusalem. Mary was also likely born into a poor family, farming family. Very likely she was not able to read or to write, just like every single other person 
that called Nazareth home. See, the miraculous power of God is all over her story. It's all over her life. And I think we miss this text if we don't see that the greatest news ever proclaimed on earth and ever will be proclaimed on earth came to the humblest people. People that would likely be passed over in our modern context. See, given all this about Nazareth and even Mary, Angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you're favored, Mary. The Lord's with you. You will be carrying someone that is truly great. The world has never seen and never will see the likes of again. She is overwhelmed, to say the least. I think we all would be. And she's trying to discern all of this. And Angel Gabriel doesn't even flinch. He reassures her, don't be afraid. God has entrusted you with something very, very great, Mary. Don't be afraid. He pierces right through her puzzled reaction. And Mary's response is one of humility and reflection. How will this be since I am a virgin? Not far-fetched. Pretty logical question, I think, if if we analyze it and just look at it for what it is. It wasn't that she didn't believe. She simply wanted to know. She was seeking understanding. She was not seeking a way out. You know, she didn't ask, why me? She asked, how? She didn't say, God, you've got the wrong person. Yeah, that that thing you want, that, that virgin birth, like, that's not for me. That's for someone else. She didn't say any of that. She didn't try to escape God's call on her life. In fact, her her concern was more about the biology of it all since she was a virgin. You know, it makes me wonder what what are our responses to what God's calling each of us to do? Our responses to God's call on each of our lives really reveal where our focus is, right? Who truly comes first? And I'll never forget one question that changed the entire trajectory of my life was this, if God is calling you to do something, why haven't you done it yet? It was this time about four years ago, like actually in this season, that um, I was contemplating going to uh, seminary and my wife and I were trying to discern um, what, what our options were, trying to make the right choices, uh, what kind of changes it would actually entail for our, our family. Because God called me out of the marketplace that I'd been in my entire life into pastoral ministry. And as we were considering options and praying through it, there was one obstacle that just, really one mountain that was there, wouldn't, wouldn't move. That was the cost. We just didn't have the money. We didn't have the finances to pay. And yet God's, God's voice was clear, move forward. Apply, enroll, begin your training. And so... We did. We just prayed and we moved forward. And I'll never, man, I'll never forget this. The day I applied, someone called me up and said, you know, God told me to pay for your education. And then, even more amazing is that in the days that followed, I received word of multiple scholarships. Church, I don't say this to direct attention to me. What I do say this for is that when God calls He is the one who provides, not us, not us. And I think when we look at Mary, we see her as a humble, needy faith model. 
that God will do the impossible. When we look at the incarnation, I mean, I think when we look at salvation, when we look at the resurrection, we see that all of them are not for the proud and self-sufficient. When we focus on our own readiness, our own neediness that we think we can meet, when we think about all that we need to execute God's call in our lives, what we're really modeling is pride. Deep down, we're saying, when God calls, I provide. When God calls, it's deep down my strength that'll see it through. It's my wisdom. It's my ability to just make things happen. And yet, through Mary's eyes, we see that God calls those that are humble and know without a doubt that they need him. So when you take a look at your own heart, what do you see? Is it pride or is it humility? Is it self-sufficiency or a neediness that can only be met by God himself? When God calls, he provides, but he provides for those that are humble and needy in spirit. And today I recognize that God calls us all in different ways, using different things. Make no mistake, he calls us all to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. But he also calls through his word. He calls through prayer. He calls through the Holy Spirit. He calls through other people. He calls even through imperfect pastors. He calls through visions and dreams. He calls through miracles. He calls through angels. He calls through natural events like earthquakes, like storms, and yes, even pandemics. God also calls through tragedy. Church, do you see, people, do you see that God has called all of humanity through the greatest tragedy ever? The cross is the greatest tragedy ever. This is exactly what Jesus' death on the cross is. It is a tragedy. But even more, the beauty is, is that it's an intentional tragedy. The crucified Jesus is the intentional outcome of the infant Jesus. This was his purpose all along. Our benevolent God and our Father expended his emotional energy of over the tragedy of our hearts, our rebellion against him by sending his son to us. And he sent him benevolently, graciously, generously. He poured out his love in sending his son. And he did it in vulnerable fashion, sending him as an infant. This is what authentic mercy looks like. And at the cross, God took our tragedy and made it his own. And he did it for our eternal good. So is God calling you today to do something and it has you overwhelmed? It has you wondering, how will this be? Take heart. You are in great company. Very good company. The scripture is filled with people asking the same questions. And I've learned something really powerful in walking out my own calling that I really want to share with you, and it's this. God never calls you to do something that you don't need him for. Your calling is not something you can do on your own. Because if you could, it's too small for God to be involved with. See, in, in Christ, God has called us all to himself 
to carry out his purposes in the world. And the comfort is that he's provided everything we need to do that. So be encouraged today. If you're asking, why me? If you're saying, God can't want me, he can't use me, you don't know all the stuff behind me. You need to hear God's response. Why not you? Why not now? God is a God who not only calls but provides. No thing is impossible with him. Let's go back to our passage and pick up in verse 35. Luke continues. He says, the angel answered her, Holy, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Wow. So Gabriel answers Mary's question by saying, you are a passive recipient of a divine initiative. You may be surprised to know, I know I was, that there is quite a bit written about what come upon you and overshadow you mean. And I don't know if humanity just can't get their mind off sex for like five minutes. Really don't know what the story is there, but a lot has been written. I'll spare you that. But this statement by Gabriel is completely asexual. It has nothing to do with sex. None of the terms Luke uses here are typical for describing conception of a child. And instead, the original language here rules out any crude ideas of a mating between the Holy Spirit and Mary. All the focus is on the conception will be the result of divine activity. And so in the same way God created the world out of nothing by the Spirit, he incarnated his son as a child. And so Gabriel ends his announcement to Mary with a sign. He says, Elizabeth, your relative, is actually six months pregnant, even in her old age. And this would have been a huge encouragement to Mary, no doubt as her relative, but also that she could see firsthand God's power to do the miraculous. What God has already done in your relative, Mary, what he's doing now in you is proof that nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is outside his power. Church, God doesn't struggle to do things. He doesn't have difficulty over things. He doesn't have to rethink something. He always accomplishes his will. I get a phone call right now. I don't know why. And even greater than giving a child to a woman past the age of childbearing, he incarnates his son to a virgin completely outside of the natural means for conception. Only God can do something like this. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of Jesus. The Bible is not some mere account, I don't know if you know this, of just God's acts, his intervening in human history. It's not that at all. The Bible is God's self-revelation. Right? It's, it's a story that belongs to him that he's invited us, he's invited humanity into. It's a redemptive story filled and overflowing with a lavishing love of which no one and no person could ever duplicate. And God's the main character, not us. And from the beginning to the end of Jesus' human life, we see God doing the impossible over and over and over. 
Salvation comes through a child born to a virgin. The child grows up to a man and lives a perfect life on our behalf. He actually takes the judgment of our sins, of all sin, for all time on himself. He dies a horrific death, the death of a criminal in our place as a substitute. And then he is raised to new life from an impossible death. God makes the impossible reality. And for followers of Christ, Mary's story is our story. God has done the impossible in bringing us from death to life in the gospel. Impossible is in God's wheelhouse. It is his sweet spot. It's what he does. And our lives are the living proof of it. Brothers and sisters, would you praise God with me today? That God has brought life to our mortal bodies through the gospel. If you're a follower of Christ, you have every reason to celebrate that today. And if you're not, you have an invitation waiting for you. But maybe you're having a tough time believing all of this. Let me encourage you. You are not required to understand all of God's ways, all of his works, to believe that nothing is impossible with God. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have everything put together in your life. And in fact, without him, you can't. See, faith requires us to place our lives in the care of another. That another is Jesus. And trust him because he does have it all sorted out. Not us. God is calling you today, and he's already provided a way through Jesus. It started that first Christmas with a lowly but a humble woman, but it didn't end there. Jesus came for each and every one of you, and he's calling you to himself through Jesus. The second truth from Mary's story is that when God calls, we respond. Let's read the last verse of our passage, verse 38. Luke writes, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Wow, just 17 words, but absolutely bursting at the seams with meaning. Think about with me for a moment what Mary might have thought but didn't say. What will people say? What's going to happen to me? This is going to bring so much shame on my family. How is Joseph going to respond? Is he going to believe me? Will he divorce me? None of those are unrealistic. In fact, we see from Matthew's gospel, divorce is precisely what Joseph considered. In fact, all of these questions are really legitimate given Mary's cultural context. We, see, we can't look at her thought process or speculate on what her thought process would be through our modern context here. But look again at her response. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Oh. This word servant is worth a second look. The Greek dule is rendered as bondservant or handmaid, and it literally means slave girl. It expresses complete and utter obedience. And so Mary sees herself as a woman who can only do the will of God and nothing else. In other words, it's as if Mary says, like, 
I don't have all this figured out. I mean, she's trying to discern, but she, she can't put the pieces together. How will this be? But I trust God to do what is good. See, Mary accepts and trusts that nothing is impossible with God. Her perspective is that as a servant, an instrument to be used in God's sovereign plan. And I think her response should remind us of the prophet Isaiah when he received a vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. He gets a real picture of how holy God is, how transcendent, how completely magnificent, truly undescribable God is, but also how truly sinful he is in light of God's holiness. He's completely undone. He's in awe, but he's also forgiven by God. And then he hears God ask, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I say a response, here am I, send me, Lord. Broken, sinful Isaiah was still valuable to God. God wanted to use him. And Isaiah responded to God's call. See, like Mary, he saw himself as a servant to be used for a purpose, divided, invited into a divine plan. Our response should be the same. It should be exactly the same. When looking through the eyes of Mary, we see her as a model of how we should respond to Jesus. She could have said, no thanks. She could have said, why me? She could have said, God, there's got to be a better choice than me. I'm, I'm just a, a little girl from a nowhere town. She could have made numerous other excuses, but we just see that she didn't. She responded with submission, with obedience. And it reminds us that God does not make his choices based on the standards of this world, and he never will. He doesn't make his choices on the standards in our heads. It isn't the strong, it isn't the knowledgeable, it isn't the perfect, it isn't those who look like they have it all together. It isn't any of that. God calls the broken. He calls those that need him. He calls those that are humble. And I'm reminded that Moses wasn't a good speaker. In fact, he was a murderer. Jeremiah was too young Rahab was a prostitute. Mary Magdalene had seven demons. Jonah ghosted God and ran away from him. Elizabeth, too old. Peter denied Jesus multiple times. And in fact, Lazarus, yes, he was dead when Jesus called him out. And today, we remember that Mary was an unmarried virgin. Mary responded in total submission. She laid her life before her Lord. And in the, in the end, it doesn't matter what I think of my calling. It doesn't matter what you think of yours. It doesn't matter what we think of each other's calling. Because in the end, it's not about us. It's about what God desires to do and if we are willing to allow him to accomplish it through us and be part of his divine plan. And as we close here today, I wonder, what is your heart posture before the Lord? Do you see yourself as a servant like Mary? Do you see yourself as an instrument in God's divine plan, invited into something that's way bigger than you could comprehend?
It is true he has a plan for your life. And he's calling you to respond. So what does it look like for you to respond this Christmas? What does it look like for you to say yes to God? What is God calling you to do that you have not done yet? Delayed obedience, church, is still disobedience. Jesus has come. God is calling us through Jesus. Let's respond. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. May our hearts be open to it, not just now in this moment, but over the days and weeks to come. God, I don't presume to know what your call is on every single heart and mind in this room or listening with us, but I know you have called them. That much we can be certain. And so God, may we respond like Mary with complete obedience and say that we are your servant. Let it be to us according to your word. In you is where we find salvation. In you is where we find every single thing we need to live according to your purposes. And so God, have your way in us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.